It's wonderful to be able to come back and bring God's word to you again and to uh, be able to take a, a journey into a, a very important subject, the subject of the unity of the church. And I really believe that the Lord wants to speak to us through the scriptures today, through his word today. And uh, so I just encourage you to, to really open your heart. And uh, as we look at the verses, as we look at the scriptures, to search your own heart, just to make sure that we are all contributing to the unity of the church. Before we get into the scriptures, let's just open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you that you have created us all so differently, and yet you have planned for us to be made into one, formed into one, built into one entity, one church, which would glorify and honor your name. As we look at your word today, Father, the words that you have handed down to us, the words that you have preserved through the generations, I ask that by your spirit you would speak to each and every one of our hearts and that you would establish this truth, this necessity, this desire of your will, that we as your people be one, that we as your people be united, that you would establish that in our hearts today, that it would be something that would keep us and it would be something, Father, that we pursue and seek all our days. So I ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, God is a God of great diversity. He loves diversity. When we look at creation, we can see that God is not just what we would call a cookie cutter, where He wants to just take everything and just form it into one standard thing. He loves diversity. You look at the trees and you see so many different kinds of trees with different shapes, different colors. And throughout creation, this is what we see. When we look at the church, we see this as well, that God desires a church that has incredible diversity in it. He is calling people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every culture into His church. He's building His church with building blocks that are very diverse, very different to each other. And yet in this diversity, God is also seeking unity. He wants unity in the midst of diversity. And when we talk about uni unity, we're not talking about uniformity, which is the sameness. We're talking about unity, which is oneness. It speaks of harmony. It speaks of agreement. It speaks of togetherness. You see, God doesn't want to remove our individual uniqueness but he does want to take the uniqueness that we all have and he wants to bring it all together in one body in perfect harmony and unity. When we look at the church and we consider the church and we consider this aspect of unity in the midst of diversity, I think we can get a good picture of what God is seeking by just considering a symphony. You, we've often uh, listened to or probably seen uh, an orchestra playing some music and what we see is we see these many different instruments with different pitches and different tones all coming together to make an incredible sound that's what God desires in the church 
that that diversity that he's brought into the church would come together in perfect harmony and produce a sound that would bring him glory throughout eternity. That's what God is seeking in the church. And he's seeking this at every level in the church, globally, universally, in the church as a whole, in a, in a region between local churches, and also within each and every congregation of believers. God wants this kind of unity to be seen in the midst of the diversity that the church is constituted of. I want to just read to you from John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. We read in this portion of Scripture some words that the Lord Jesus prayed uh, just before His betrayal, on the night that He was betrayed. And we call this prayer that is recorded in John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's His final prayer for His apostles and also for His church throughout all generations before He goes back to the Father, before He's crucified. And uh, this is what we read in John chapter 17 and verse 20 to 23. This is the Lord praying. He said, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me. So he's saying here, I'm not praying only for the apostles that were standing with him at the time. But he says, I'm also praying for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That's believers in every generation. And then he says this, May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely made one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Do you see what the Lord Jesus is praying for here? Constantly this word one comes up, or it could be unity. It could be translated unity, that we would all be united in one, that we would all be brought together in one. He talks here about us being made completely one or coming into perfect unity. We also see from the writings of the Apostle Paul that bringing this incredible diversity that we see within the church together into this perfect unity that Jesus was praying for, this unity that Paul calls a, a unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, was one of the foremost reasons for Christ to give apostles, and prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, and teachers to the church. We read this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 13. Paul writes and he says, And he himself, that's Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ, now listen to this, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Do you see how this kind of unity that Paul is talking about here, this unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, is linked together 
with maturity in Christ and Christ-likeness. You see, a mature Christ-like church will be one that is united in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. Or we could say that for us to grow into maturity and fullness requires us to be brought together, to be united as one in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. Although the process involved in bringing this to pass begins with church leaders, as we see right here in this passage that we've just read, what we also see is that we all have a definite part to play and a definite responsibility to bear in bringing this to pass through the help of the Holy Spirit. And this is why the apostles in their writings to the churches, the writings that we have recorded in Scripture, were constantly teaching and exhorting the members of the churches to desire, to value, and to seek unity amongst themselves. Let's just read a few such passages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and this is what he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, we read these words, also penned by the Apostle Paul. He says, As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Do you see the connection between us living lives that are worthy of the gospel and our being united in spirit and purpose? We cannot live lives that are worthy of the gospel unless we are united in spirit and in purpose. It's not surprising that God wants a united church. It's not surprising that God wants us to be like that symphony. Although we're very diverse and very different, all together making a sound that brings Him glory and honor. A church without division and schism. The reason is because there is great blessing that comes from this kind of unity. In Psalms 133 verses 1 to 3 we read the following. How delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. It is like fine oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard onto his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has appointed the blessing, life forevermore. Do you see the connection between this blessing and, he says, brethren dwelling together in unity? We see that this was the experience of the church in Jerusalem way back in the beginning. There was great unity in the church and there was great blessing from God as well. We read in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 25, the Lord Jesus said the following. He said, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction and no city or house divided against itself will stand. When we think of the story of the Tower of Babel, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 11, we see 
men coming together, united with one purpose and one aim. And the Lord looked down from heaven and he said, as long as they're united like this, nothing will be impossible for them. And we see the Lord coming down and then bringing a, a misunderstanding, changing their languages. And the moment that division came in, the project that they had embarked on fell apart. Do you see how unity is such a powerful force in establishing things in the earth? And disunity, division, will always destroy that. Disunity within the church will never bring about the glory of God. And it will never serve to advance the kingdom of God. But unity within the church, true unity, will do so. Division within the church will destroy the church's witness for God. But true unity will promote it. We need to remember what we read earlier in John chapter 17. When the Lord prayed, He said, May they be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Do you see the connection between unity and our witness as God's people in the world? And this is why God wants unity, amongst other reasons. This is why Jesus prayed for it. This is why the apostles taught it and exhorted the church to seek it and desire it. And this is why we today are to do the same. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, the following words. He said, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Do you see that last phrase there? Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What is the basis for this unity of the Spirit? This true biblical unity that we are talking about today. Paul carries on in the same passage from verses 4 to 6 in Ephesians chapter 4. And he says this, There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. You see, what Paul is giving us here is he is giving us the, I would say, seven foundations or seven pillars of true biblical unity, of the unity of the Spirit. The first one is he says there is one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Although we are all so unique and diverse, we must never forget that we are all part of one entity. We are part of one body. We are part of one nation, one church, one family. And we really need to see each other in that light. Secondly, he says there is one Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all given one Spirit to drink. You see, we all share in one Spirit. That, that one Spirit may work differently 
in and through each of us, but every work that happens through us, the different operations of the Spirit that we see in each of us, is all the work of one and the same Spirit. We could say this, the Holy Spirit is like a conductor of a symphony. We are the instruments, and He's the one that is conducting, and He's the one that's bringing the sound together, different instruments making different sounds, but as we are led by the Spirit, as we walk in the Spirit, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, producing a sound together that will bring glory and honor to God. Thirdly, Paul talks here about one common calling through which we all share one common hope. We've all been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And as a result of that one calling, we all have the same amazing hope in God. The hope of the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, the hope of a new heaven and a new earth, which will be the home of righteousness. Fourthly, he talks about the fact that there is just one Lord. The same Lord died for us all, purchased us with His blood, and we all belong to Him. We all belong to the same Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We all love Him, and therefore we're all seeking to please Him and serve Him, even though it may be in different ways. Fifthly, Paul talks here about one faith, the faith that Jude tells us has been delivered and entrusted once and for all to the saints. The faith which he says we are to all contend for. It is the faith that is expounded in the writings of the apostles. Six, there is one baptism. Paul says there is one baptism. We have all been baptized into Christ. And in that baptism, we have all been fully identified with Him. As believers in Jesus, our identity is not found in our ministries. It's not found in our gifts. It's not even found in our uniqueness. Our identity is found in Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 to 28 says this, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Lastly, Paul says there is one God and Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, who is above all, He is through all, and He is in all. And every single one of us is His children, we're all a part of His household and His family. And it's these seven things that we've just gone through that form the basis for our unity as believers in Jesus Christ, as the church of Jesus Christ. These are the things around which we gather, around which we find common ground. These are the things that unite us in our diversity. Now, the very fact that Paul tells the Ephesians to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit tells us that there are going to be things, forces, we could say, that will oppose this unity and will seek to destroy it. And it's vital that we understand and appreciate this. The devil is set against the unity of the church. 
He always seeks to oppose the will of God. And because God's will is that we are united, that we are one in spirit and heart and mind, the devil will always try to oppose that. And we can see this down through the, the, the millennia. Since the church began, the devil has fought to destroy unity within the church. He has strategies to do this. And they involve using people. The devil always wants to use people. That's how he works. And we see from Scripture that he uses, firstly, false ministers, deceitful workers. The Bible calls them servants of Satan, false apostles, false prophets, false teachers, people that are disguised as ministers of righteousness. It speaks about them being wolves in sheep's clothing. People that do not have the Holy Spirit of God, they do not have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, and they teach things that are contrary to the truth. People with selfish ambition who want to exploit and abuse the church of God for their own gain. And Paul talks about these peoples in many different passages. The Lord talks about them in Matthew chapter 7 where he, he tells us to beware of false prophets. These people are the very people that Paul warned the elders that were in the church in Ephesus about when he was giving his farewell message to them. We read this in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 to verse 30. I just want to read it quickly. He said to these elders in the church in Ephesus, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. So what we're seeing, we're getting a picture here of people that begin to teach heresy in order to be able to form a sect and draw people away to follow them. And we end up, what do we end up with? We end up with division. Secondly, we see that Satan will even use people within the church, members of the church. He will take people captive, the Bible says, to do his own will. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy and chapter 2. He also talks about these kind of people in Titus chapter 3. They are people who are only interested in foolish arguments and controversies about words and things that really don't contribute to the edification of the church or the work of the Lord. And they'll spend so much time and energy on arguing about these things, even to the point of dividing the church over such things that are not really fundamentals, that are not really that important. And they will rise up and oppose the truth of God, and they'll oppose often even leaders that God has set in the church to uphold the truth. And many times they will do it even in ignorance. And this is why one of the primary jobs of church leadership is to protect God's people, the flocks that God places them over, from such people, from people that are bent on causing division and causing conflict in the church. But you know that that's not the only way that division comes in the church. The devil will also try to use each and every one of us by tempting us through the desires of our flesh. He will seek to use, I could put it this way, fleshly forces within each of us. What do I mean by this? What I mean is that there will come temptation to get offended, 
to feel slighted, for us to harbor selfish ambition in our hearts, so that instead of being focused on what is best for the church, we become focused on just what we feel is best for us. And because of those desires within our hearts and those, those evil uh, purposes within our hearts, we end up causing conflict and division in the church. We might have bitter envy in our hearts. We might be tempted to quarrel when we don't get what we desire or when we don't feel like we've been treated the way we deserve to be treated. We may be tempted to speak evil of one another. And in doing so, what do we do? If we give in to those temptations, if we do not resist them, we will become instruments that cause conflict and disruption in the church. This is what James was talking about in James chapter 4 verse 1. He said this, what is the source of wars and fights among you? In other words, what is the source of things that disrupt and destroy the unity that is in the church? And then he gives us the answer. He says, don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Do you know that there's a very real chance that every one of us could fall into this category? There is a very real chance that if we are not alert and we are not careful, that each of us or any of us can be used to bring conflict and to bring disunity into the church simply because of these fleshly desires that may be in our hearts. In James chapter 3 and verse 14 to 16, James says this, If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast about it and don't deny the truth. In other words, what he's saying is deal with it. Because such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every kind of evil practice. Even in the church, wherever we find envy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and every kind of evil practice. And so this is why we all must be ever conscious of the need to do all that we can as individuals and collectively to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Each of us as individuals before God must make sure that we never become instruments that oppose God's will for the church to be united as one because of our behavior. For us to have unity as believers in Christ and as a church, it basically comes down to three essential things. And I've touched on these three things as I've been going through this message. And I just want to just bring them together and just put them clearly before you. Firstly, we need to know the truth of the gospel so that we're not led astray by false ministers, so that we're not led to believe things that are actually heresy. We need to know the truth of the gospel. We need to know what scriptures actually teach us. And we need to be zealous to know for sure what the Christian faith is all about. We have, each of us, a responsibility to study the scriptures and to learn and know what they teach us. We need to know what the faith is. Secondly, we all need to understand and remember and keep clearly in mind and in focus the seven things, the seven foundations upon which this unity is going to be built. 
the ones that we talked about from Ephesians chapter 4. And thirdly, we all need to make sure that we maintain godly attitudes towards each other. We need to prize highly and hold in esteem this aspect of unity within the body of Christ. What we need to do is we need to clothe ourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience, and with love towards one another. The way that we act towards one another is very, very important in maintaining the unity of the Spirit. We need to be willing to bear with one another and to forgive grievances that we might have against each other, to forgive each other just as the Lord forgave us. We need to allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts because we've been called to be one body. Instead of grumbling and complaining, let's be people that are thankful. Instead of looking for the wrong and the negative, let's look for the things that are right and are good. Let's take care of one another's interests rather than just thinking about our own interests. Let not, let's not be people that are self-seeking or selfish in our pursuits. Rather, let's lay down our lives for each other, just as Christ laid down His life for us. And if each and every one of us is committed to holding these kind of attitudes, the kind of things that I've just been mentioning, humility and kindness and gentleness and love, if we will hold those and clothe our lives with these things, that will foster and maintain the unity that God desires in the church. And we really all have a responsibility before God for this. So today, let's all make a commitment to maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Let's put a guard over our hearts. Let's be sober and alert because as the Bible says, the adversary prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour, seeking whom he can take captive for his own purposes. Let's submit our lives to God and let's resist the devil and every temptation to be self-seeking and selfish in the way that we act and deal with one another. Let's walk in the Spirit. Let's not think about how we can gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's not allow Satan to have any place in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us the awesome, unspeakable privilege of being a part of your church, that you've called each and every one of us to be a part of this incredible body that you are building, this incredible temple that you are constructing, this holy nation, this royal priesthood that we belong to. Thank you, Father, for calling us, not because of anything we've done, but by your own grace, choosing us to be a part of this. Father, we don't want to live our lives conduct ourselves in the church or between one another in a way that would oppose or stand against your will for us all to be one in spirit 
in heart, in mind, and in purpose. And so I pray that, Father, you will take these words today that I've been sharing, words that come from the Scriptures, from your Word, and that you would write them on the tablets of our hearts, and that you would put them in our minds, that we would never lose sight of them, that we would never forget them. That, Father, when we are tempted to do things that might bring disunity, that might bring uh, destruction, that might bring conflict, strife into the church, Father, we would remember these words and choose not to yield to those desires. I pray, Father, that you would help us as a church to stand firm in agreement, stand firm in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, and to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would enable us to be alert and sober, so that the devil may not take us captive in any way, so that he may not find any place in our midst, but that, Father, we would be a people in which your Spirit has freedom to work, and, Father, a people in which your Spirit can be seen at work in and through us. I ask this today in Jesus' mighty name. And we give you thanks, Father, for your grace to do this. Amen. It's been wonderful to be able to just bring God's Word to you today. And I really do mean what I was praying there, that every single one of us would make that kind of commitment to being instruments of unity, true unity, biblical unity in the church, in harvest and in the church in this city as a whole. May God bless you, may He keep you, and may He make His face to shine upon you. Amen.